The sermon text this morning is Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 30. Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 30. Before we have that reading, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Now, Father in heaven, as we now seek with worshipful hearts to sit under the instruction of your word, we pray, Father, that we would be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 29, starting our reading at verse 1. Hear the word of God. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so, 
and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Amen. And may God bless his word to us. So I've already got the title for this sermon. It's quite often I don't work out a title until after the sermon. It's quite often that I don't really know um, how to give this thing a title. But today it seems pretty obvious to me. I like this title because it's ambiguous. Jacob meets his match. You can take that positively. You can take that negatively. Jacob meets his match. Who's his match? Is it Rachel, the one that he loves with a consuming love? Is it Leah? the one who turns out to be the more faithful and more blessed of his wives? Or is it Laban, the one who pays Jacob back in like coin? Jacob is a deceiver and a usurper, and he's met his match finally. He's had his way with his family, but now he's caught up with someone who's even one step ahead of him, someone who's even just a little bit more crafty than he is, someone who really knows how to play the game of deception. Jacob has in one way or another, however you want to look at it, Jacob has met his match. This is all in the providence of God. This is all in the working of God as he sets about the task of transforming Jacob. God is going to deal with Jacob as he deals with a son. And we're told in the book of Hebrews that when God is dealing with a son, one of the things that the son must expect is to be disciplined, to be shaped, to be formed, to be made suitable to live in the house of God. Jacob is being disciplined. And it's um, interesting. He was accused of being a deceiver by his brother Esau. And now he's complaining about being deceived. My friends, there's a little lesson there for you. There's a little lesson there for all of us. Very often, Our worst habits come around, as we say, to bite us on the behind, to bite us on the rear quarters. Very often you just simply get repaid back in what it is that you have paid out. And that's what's happened to Jacob. If uh, you want to deal in lies and if you want to deal in deception, in the end, you yourself will will be dealt with in that same way. This is in the providence of God, and this is even for faithful people like you and I. There is a difference in the way that God deals with people in the world. There are some people who get paid back in like coin to their own destruction. They are not favoured by God. They are not called to salvation. They get paid back in like coin to their eternal punishment. There are others whom God loves and whom God is in the business of transforming. He disciplines, he shapes, he forms. What he wants in us, he will get out of us. One way or another, he will purify his people. He will purify his church as a collective. He will purify the individuals who are his people. Testing trials and troubles, it is actually a part of the believer's life and should always be expected to be a part of the believer's life. Don't expect every day to be sunshine and flowers. Don't expect every season of your life to be springtime. That's not the way it works for the people of God. God is using all circumstances for our good. 
For all who love God, all things are made to work together for good, to conform us to the image and the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we just move forward through the text, we find that Jacob, it literally says he picked up his feet. He's had the vision of God that we spoke of last week. He saw Jacob's ladder, God's ladder. He saw that God was dealing with all of the earth and dealing with him. He saw that there was a connection between heaven and earth and that God was to be worshipped. Well, he picks up his feet in the encouragement of this and continues his journey. He's travelled far. And he comes to the area where he was intending to go. He, he reaches his destination. This is the providence of God. And there he finds flocks of sheep. He finds people to whom he may well be related. And at verse 4, he speaks to them. My brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. All very good. I've got to the right place. I've found the right people. Now, we just see a little bit of Jacob's character. Little bits and pieces of his character are sort of revealed to us here in this text. Remember, he was his mother's favoured son who liked to dwell around the tents. You know, a little bit bossy here, a little bit forward. He sort of assumes that he knows what's best. Probably he's speaking to, we would call them children. Nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds. It wasn't unusual for children that age to be the shepherds of their family's sheep. And so that would explain a little bit as to why he speaks in this way. But it's it's really very forward. Knowing nothing about the place, knowing nothing about the people. At verse seven, he says, behold, look here. What's going on? Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. Their reply is fairly simple. We can't until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. It could well be that we're told earlier the stone is large. That's at the end of verse 2. The stone is large. It could well be that if these are between the ages of 9 and 13, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, it might actually take a pretty concerted effort. You know, you can imagine a a bunch of young men, even a girl or two, counting a one and a two and a three to move the large rock from off the well. Why would the well be covered? To stop people you don't like getting at it. To stop people doing stupid things. Vandalism was a thing, even back in the day. Cover the well, keep it safe. While he was still speaking with them, we're at verse 9. Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebecca's son, and she ran and told her father. What do I find interesting here? Well, first of all, Rachel, the younger daughter, is shepherding the sheep, and Laban's sons are not. Later on in Scripture, we find that Laban does have sons. Verse 31, I mean, chapter 31 at verse 1, Now Jacob heard the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. 
So he's got sons and his sons are apparently not expected to help look after the sheep. But the girls are, particularly the youngest one, she's sent off to work. Talking about things that reveal a little bit of character here. Um, his daughters have animal names. His daughters have animal names. Rachel seems like a nice name. Good name for a pretty girl. It means you. E-W-E. Female sheep. And what does Leah sound like? It sounds like cow. C-O-W. Female cow. (laughs) He's got two girls and he called one a sheep and the other a cow. You know, what, what kind of value does he put on these girls? Well, I wonder if the names give it away. Because we do see that he's perfectly willing to trade them off. You know, if you have a sheep and you have a cow, well, you utilise your assets. They're either for meat or they're for milk or they're for offspring. They're for your advantage. You know, sheep and cow, that's what he's called his girls. Anyway, Jacob's told Jacob at verse 11, he's kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Why would that be? Well, this young man who was his mother's favourite has just spent weeks, possibly months alone, travelling through the wilderness, sleeping outside of the tents, and we're told that Jacob particularly loved to live and dwell amongst the tents. He wasn't, he wasn't by nature naturally attracted to the idea of being an outdoors man. Later on, when he has his argument, with Laban, he has an, a major argument with Laban at the time of their separation. One of his complaints was, I spent all my time outside in the frost and the rain and the sun and the snow. He doesn't particularly like it. And he's been lonely. The favoured and beloved of his mother, travelling traveling alone through the wilderness. He's come to family. He's come to Rachel. We're told that Rachel is beautiful. He's met a relative. The relative is beautiful, sweet in nature. He feels like he's home. Jacob kissed Rachel. This is not, you know, don't don't get the Wuthering Heights picture in your mind. You know, the the guy running from the left and the girl running from the right into the centre of the into the centre of the into the centre of the stage. Heathcliff, Catherine, Heathcliff, Catherine. Don't get that picture in your mind. It's, it's not this great romantic coming together. It's, it's the cultural meaning, the cultural meeting. You know, we're, 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 we're told in the New Testament to, to, to give each other the kiss of fellowship. These days, we've basically replaced it with a handshake, a light embrace. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not really kissing each other on the cheek anymore, and I'm pretty happy with that arrangement. He kisses Rachel, weeps aloud, tells Rachel that, We're related. I'm Rebecca's son. We're cousins. And Rachel runs to tell her father. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. So he's accepted Jacob into the family. You are my bone and my flesh. You're here. Where is one? Now, Laban's not the kind of man who says anything without a plan in mind. We find that out. Laban's got a plan. He's a pretty crafty guy. 
And I'll bet you within an hour of getting Jacob into his house, he realised that Jacob only has eyes for one of his daughters. Jacob likes the ewe, not so much the cow. But his mind is on the ewe. And, you know, when, when people are sort of intensely attracted to someone, one way or another it shows up, he's worked it out pretty quickly. What's more, this Jacob, he was willing to roll a stone away and water the sheep. Laban may have managed to raise sons who weren't interested in caring for the livestock, which is the wealth of the family. But Jacob, the first thing he does when he turns up is he gets to work. He's willing to actually do something for all these faults. He's willing to work. As was his mother, Rebecca. Remember? Abraham's servant meets Rebecca. And what's the very first thing that Rebecca did? I'll water you, I'll water your animals. I'll get to work, I'll serve you. Laban realises when he's on to a good thing. Verse 15, then Laban said to Jacob, Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. Now I'll stop there. Leah's eyes were weak. There are two ways to read the word that is translated in the ESV as weak. It could say weak or it could say delicate. And sometimes the word is used in a praiseworthy manner. Delicate workings. Beautiful workings. It could be so it could be that here Moses, the author of Genesis, is saying, look, Rachel, she was an absolute knockout, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance, whereas Leah, her strongest feature was she had nice eyes. It could just be what he's saying. She had nice eyes. Now, you know, I'll go back in time. To before I was a Christian, before I met Lisa. You know, I was just one of the guys, I played football, I had friends, we partied, etc., etc. There were times when someone would say, perhaps you should go and meet this girl. She's, she likes you. And say, what she's like, what's she like? And the answer might be, she's got nice eyes. And I'd say, I'm not interested. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's the brutal truth. I'll admit it. I was just a selfish, headstrong kid. But if the best thing someone had to say about some particular girl was that she had nice eyes, I couldn't care less. That was me at that time. I just wasn't interested. I wasn't after the girl with nice eyes. I was after the girl who was a knockout. Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak or delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. Now, here, as I said, you know, little bits of a person's personality are being sort of revealed to us. Jacob was a man who um, often developed an obsessive affection. An obsessive affection. I, I, I've nothing against love. And a man and a man and his wife are supposed to love each other over and above all other human relationships. But Jacob was one who could obsess over a person to the point where that person could become an idol. There's Rachel. Rachel has a son named Joseph. Now, 
I'm sure most of you have read enough of the book of Genesis to realize that Joseph was by far and away Jacob's favored son, given special clothes to wear. He was the son that hung around with Jacob and Jacob would send him out to check up on the brothers. And it was Joseph who had the dreams of ruling over the whole family. And Jacob never held him back, never pulled him into line. He had this obsessive love for Rachel. He has an obsessive love later on for Rachel's son, Joseph. And then when he loses Joseph, we're told that he ties his whole life and happiness up to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. And if he does not have Benjamin around, surely he will die. This is just part of his character. He's a man who is capable of utterly obsessive love. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen sort of someone who gets obsessed with one particular person. Just just to give an example, I remember a particular incident. A grandmother at a wedding was taking photos of her three nieces. And it became obvious that she was actually really only taking a photo of her favourite. And as long as the favoured one was in the middle of the frame and as long as the favoured one had the photo taken the way the grandmother wanted it, she honestly did not notice that the other two girls were there. She did not notice to the point where later on she said to one of those other two girls, well, I'll have to get a photo with you in it. And she said, Nan, didn't you notice I was there? I was in that photo? Obsessive love. This kind of way to single out a person and make them a favourite. Now, as I said, a husband and wife are supposed to have love one for another that is excluding all others. Over and above every other human relationship is the love between a man and his wife. But you can take anything too far. Any good thing can become an idol. And Jacob is one of these people able to utterly obsess over a person. Jacob loved Rachel, verse 18, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Well, men, how long? How long were you able to, to, um, I don't know what the word I'm trying to put is, but how was your patience when you met the love of your life? Interesting. Was it seven years strong? Could, could, you, could, you, could you have set yourself up for seven years of work? I'll work seven years. Anyways, he loves her. He's crazy about her. He's nuts about her. Laban says, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. I think what Laban is hoping is that by the end of seven years, and he's thinking, and I'm, I'm pretty sure he's already got this plan in mind. I'll get him here for longer than seven years. You watch me. I'll work it out. I think he's hoping that Jacob will stay with him permanently. I think he's hoping that he's permanently got himself another, another worker in the household. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Well, this is a man who's truly obsessed, deeply in love. If, if he can spend seven years being a shepherd of flocks out in the elements and barely notice a day go by, to him, it's but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Well, wow, he's, he's fallen deep. Verse 21, then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her. 
for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Now, this is almost exactly the same trick that was played on him. I mean, sorry, that Jacob played on his father. Jacob pretended to be the older and went into his father in a situation where his father could not see the difference between one and the other. Well, you're thinking, how does he end up with the wrong girl in the bed and not really know the difference? All right, it's night time, it's dark. The light is the light of an oil lamp. It's not particularly bright. The girl is wearing a veil underneath the loose clothing. She has the form and the shape of a woman. He has no reason to suspect that the switch is being made. And furthermore, he's probably had a glass or two of sherry. A wedding is a celebration after all. He's probably had a few drinks as well. He's in a pretty good mood. He's not really suspecting anything. He's not really looking for anything. Doesn't know the difference. In the dark, he ends up with Leah. And he went into her. I mean, that's a, that's a euphemism. It's, it's literally he went to bed with her. Verse 24, Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? <laughs> you know, there's nothing a thief hates more than being stolen from. There's nothing a cheat hates more than being cheated. They, they, you know, they, they, they whine and they moan. Why has this happened to me? <laughs> I like Jacob. I've told you before. My favourite Old Testament character. But I, I, I just love this, you know. Why then have you deceived me? Well, Jacob, why did you deceive your father? Well, there was an advantage in it. There was something I wanted. I deceived my father to get what I wanted. Well, then why did Laban deceive you? Oh, he sees an advantage in it. There's something that Laban wanted. He deceived me to get what he wanted. Well, what do you think he wanted? You've served him for seven years. What do you think he wants? Oh, I get it. I follow. I understand. Laban said, verse 26, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. It's funny, you know, he had seven years to mention this to Jacob. <laughs> seven years and somehow or other the subject never came up. And let's not forget that Leah was willing to enter into this. I mean, she may have had no choice. Back in the day, she was obviously a possession. Note that uh, daughters were traded off for money or for service. She was called the cow. You know, you buy cows, you sell cows, you utilise cows. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So basically the deal here is spend a week with Leah and then I'll give you Rachel and you stay with me for seven more years. You know, it's, it's just not so deeply romantic, is it? <laughs> it's, it's just to our ears, to our minds, this is all just a little bit too pragmatic, a little bit too much like a business transaction, isn't it? 
You see, we've made marriage to mean more than it meant to the patriarchs. And the reason that this is so is because the Lord Jesus has commanded it to be so. We're told that a suitable man for leadership is the husband of but one wife. We're told that he's to manage his household well. Jacob is not the husband of but one wife. By the end of the story, he actually has four, if you haven't worked that out. Those those handmaids given to the girls, they're his concubines. He didn't get one, he got four. He only wanted one, he got three he didn't want. And um, the ongoing story of Jacob will tell us that he does not manage his household well. He basically manages his household to his own advantage. We're told to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Jacob fails in this area. He fails. Now, when we say love our wives as Christ loves the church, think of it. The first thing you should think of is it's sacrificial. And the answer is yes, it's sacrificial. You're being told, men, to lay down your life, as it were, for your wife. You're not told to become her servant, but you're told to make yourself her protector, her carer, her provider in every way. As much as it is possible to do, be like Jesus to your wife. But you're also being told a little more than that. I'll just read to you one of the commandments from the book of Leviticus. You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. We'll leave it there. You shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister. That's the commandment in the law. I know Jacob did not have the law at that moment. He did not have the book of Leviticus to read. But rival wife. Think about it. Rival wife. Are we competing for the Lord Jesus' attention? Everyone here who is a Christian who is in Christ, do we compete for his attention? Do we compete for his love? Is anyone here a rival? Are we rivals in the service of God? The answer is no, we're not. No, we're not. Jesus loves his people. Each and every one of us, Jesus being God, the eternally begotten Son of God, each and every one of us has full, total and present communion with our Lord and Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. We're not rivals. We're not competing. But Jacob, we will see, has now got himself four wives and he's got a household in competition. They're rivals. He's set up rivalry, hoping to play the game to his own advantage. So at verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week. He gave a week to Leah. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Verse 29, Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban. For another seven years. So he worked in waiting for seven years and then he worked in confirmation for another seven years. He worked 14 years to procure 
the one that he wanted. Rachel was the one that he wanted. Rachel was the one that he loved beyond and above all others. Rachel was the one that he was obsessing over. 14 years. 14 years before um, you start to think about your freedom, before you start to think about getting away from this place. 14 long, hard years. How long does it take to change somebody? How long does it take to transform someone? It can take a long time. 14 years of hard discipline, 14 years of hard labour, 14 years. Later on, Jacob complains that Laban deceives him 10 times. 10 times. So here we are at step one, first deception. We're not even told what all of the deceptions are. 10 times. At the end of 14 years, do you think he's had his fill of lies and deception and realised that he does not want any part of this? 14 years. How long does it take you to learn a lesson, my friends? How long does it take you to actually surrender and submit to God? Will it take 14 years? Whatever, whatever issue we're talking about, whatever we're dealing with, whatever the issue is between you and God at this moment, I'm not saying that you're not a child of God. You may well be a child of God. I, I don't claim to know the heart. But if you are a child of God, a servant of God, if you are in Christ, how long will it take you to learn your lesson? Whatever lesson it is that God is teaching you at this time, whatever thing it is within your life that God is breaking down, you know, whatever it is that God is clearing out, cutting away, burning, casting on the fire, whatever branch of the vine God has chosen to prune, how much resistance are you going to give to God? And how long before you bend the knee and actually submit? How hard do you want things to get? If you are in Christ and if you are a servant of God and if you are under the discipline of God, here's what I'll tell you. You will be disciplined by God until the discipline has accomplished the purpose for which it is intended. He knows you better than you know yourself and he knows what he's doing better than you know yourself and better than you know what he's doing. And if you are hard of heart and if you are inclined to resist the father's discipline, the discipline will be upon you until it has accomplished its purposes. And this may well mean misery and this may well mean pain. Your, your whole aim as a Christian, ought to be that you will grow in grace and in faith and in Christ-likeness. That you will increasingly become the person that you are intended to be. In heaven, we know that we will be perfected as servants of the living God. Doesn't mean we're going to be divine ourselves. We are never going to lose our created nature. But we are going to be 
that which God intends us to be, perfected in our created nature. And your whole aim should be in this life that you will indeed seek to become as ready for heaven upon this earth as much as you possibly can. Your whole aim is, as it were, to reach into heaven, into that timeless place and drag from there to here that which God has stored up for you. To be that which God intends you to be. My friends, if God has put you under discipline, you will be under discipline until you learn the lesson that you are being taught. And sometimes that's very hard to know and to understand. That if you are a Christian, God is dealing with you as a child. Let's have a look at a few passages of Scripture. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians. And chapter 12, 2 Corinthians 12. We'll start at verse 1. I must go on boasting. Now, in this part of, in this closing of the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is asserting that he truly has the authority of an apostle and in all of the things that he has told them, he had every right to give them this instruction. I must go on boasting. He's speaking of his status in Christ. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man. Now he's speaking of himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. This man was caught up into that timeless heavenly future. That eternity where he saw things as God intended them to be. God knows, verse 4, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. So he has received surpassingly great revelations. Remember, he knows a man who's seen paradise. He knows a man who has seen things so glorious and wonderful that it would not be right for that man to speak of them. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger, the word messenger, angelos, angel. A messenger, an angel of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
Absorb carefully what was said there, my friends. Absorb carefully what was said. Paul says, I as an apostle have been given visions of eternity. I have seen things that are surpassingly great and glorious. So great and glorious that I can't actually speak of some of the things that God has shown me. But there's a risk that in knowing these things, I will become proud and conceited. And basically, a demon was sent to harass me in order to maintain me in a state of humility. Well, who would permit this to happen? Apart from the Lord Jesus himself. Paul doesn't answer to Satan. We're actually told in the book of Acts that the demons know who Paul is. Jesus we know, Peter and Paul we've heard of. Paul doesn't answer to Satan. Paul does not consider himself to be a servant of Satan nor a part of Satan's kingdom. Yet a messenger of Satan is sent to harass him to keep him from becoming proud. Who does he ask for relief? Not Satan. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Understand. Understand exactly what's being said. God in love will use anything to set his people straight. He will use anything to maintain his people in the way of holiness as he sees fit. As he sees fit, we worship a fearsome and awesome God. My friends, if God for our good must allow Satan to harass us, he will do so. And I can tell you that when you're under this discipline of God, and I don't claim to be an apostle, I make no such claim, but I claim to have experienced some discipline from God. As long as you're under that discipline, you you can do all the rebuking of spirits that you like and you can talk about sending Satan off and all this stuff. You can carry on like that as much as you want. God will not take that pressure off your shoulders until he is certain that he has accomplished the purpose for which he sent it. And so great was the Apostle Paul's revelations and so great was the risk that Paul could become conceited that God said, no, it's not being taken away at all. You are to be maintained in a state of weakness for my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, in a way, I'm thankful that we're not apostles with a capital A. We're not one of those sent forth personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have the responsibility of starting and founding the church. And we we are not authors of scripture because it's obvious that God had to deal with these men in a certain way to make them what he wanted them to be. But my friends, what we've just read should make us tremble. It should make us tremble. Our God and Father is an almighty, all-powerful God, perfect in righteousness and holiness. 
and he has the right to discipline us, his children, in whatsoever way he desires, for however long he so desires. Rachel becomes practically a slave to a deceiver to learn not to be a cheater, a liar and a trickster. 14 years. He was blessed along the way. He had many children. He becomes the, um, the broadening river or stream that is the nation of Israel. Israel in future is called Jacob. It's called Israel. Every time we call the people of Israel Israel, we're calling them, calling them the offspring of Jacob. Israel is the name that is given to Jacob. But for 14 years, he's put under the authority of someone who is even better at deception, tricking and lying than he is, just to teach him to hate his sin. Just to teach him not to try and use worldly and fleshly ways to accomplish the purposes of God. And so I ask you the question, how hard is your conscience? How long will you need to be under discipline if ever God brings it upon you? How much will it take before you learn to bend the knee? I'm telling you, my friends, the discipline can continue as long as God so desires. Once again, I I do not claim to be the apostle. I'm not. But I can tell you now, Lisa and I have had experiences in our life where we know we were under God's chastening. We were under God's discipline. Mostly, I honestly mostly feel that this was my fault. Far from a perfect man. Far from a perfect man. My friends, bend the knee to Christ. Bend the knee to his righteous commandments. Bend the knee to his holy requirements. He is our king. He is our prince. He is our Lord. He is our saviour. He is our elder brother in whose likeness we are being remade. He is our friend. But my friends, always remember, this is a relationship with one who is so much more mighty than we are. We're not equals to him. He's, he is, if you want to use it, put it crudely, he is equal to God in every way. Truly God, truly divine, in and of himself, divine, truly God. We are not. We are created. We are created to glorify him and to serve him. And so, my friends, consider what we read earlier in the book of Galatians. What you sow, you shall reap. Not to your condemnation. If you're in Christ, this will not be to your condemnation, but it will certainly be to your discipline, to your purification. God will work in your lives until he has gotten what he wants. This is a good thing, actually. This is a good thing. We rejoice in this, actually. Although I'm telling you now, whilst it's happening, you might not smile very often. Because that's the way God works. We are his created people. And we must remember that in all things, all things, even if we're attacked by Satan, even if we're deceived by a deceiver, in all things, God gets the glory. And in all things, God is accomplishing his purposes. My friends, Always be willing to accept the discipline of God and to respond in the way that God expects.
Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your love and for your great mercy and that you have taken children such as us and that you are transforming us into the image and the likeness of our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, our Father, that you will continue this work in our lives and that our consciences will be tender and prompted by the Holy Scriptures and by the power of your Holy Spirit in order that we will grow in grace and faith and Christ-likeness. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.